I invite you to turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. Please follow along as I read. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Before we study our Father's word this morning, let's commit our time to him in prayer. Father, we uh, again are grateful for the great privilege we have to come and to worship you freely. Thank you for the songs that have been sung and the family time together. And now with a psalmist, I would pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You who are our God and our Redeemer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a grueling 544-mile endurance race from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. It's the world's longest and toughest ultramarathon. In 1983, 150 world-class runners came for the event. On the day of of the race, a 61-year-old potato farmer and sheep herder, Cliff Young, approached the registration table wearing his overalls and his work boots. Everybody assumed he was there to watch the race, but he wasn't. He wanted to run in the race, and he asked for a number. Cliff Young had grown up on a farm without the luxury of horses, four-wheel vehicles. When the storms rolled in, Cliff went out and rounded up over 2,000 of his sheep over a 2,500-acre farm. Sometimes it would take him days to complete that roundup. The skeptical staff gave him number 64. As he mingled with the runners, there was skepticism. This guy nuts? (laughs) When the gun went off, the snickers turned to laughter. He was left there in his boots and overalls as the sleek runners in their racing gear took off. The laughter increased when he started to run at what really wasn't a run, was kind of a leisurely odd shuffle. Five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, Cliff 
across the finish line in Melbourne, Australia, winning the ultramarathon. How could that happen? It was almost seemingly impossible. Well, the accepted practice in the marathon was to run for 18 hours and then sleep for six hours. Cliff never got the memo. Nobody told him he was supposed to rest. So he just kept shuffling along, day and night, night and day, setting a new course record of over eight hours better. Interestingly, the professionals began to look at his racing technique. It became known as the Cliff Young Shuffle. Some even adopted it. The New Testament uses the picture of a race for the Christian life. It's not a 100-yard dash. That's where speed is involved. No, the Christian life, as the writers use it, is a marathon. It takes endurance. In June, we began a little short series on biblical faith. We entitled it, Faith That Endures in a Changing World and a Shifting Culture. We looked first at Hebrews chapter 11. We chose Hebrews because the author is writing to an audience that's under the gun. They're being persecuted. And some of them are thinking, well, this walking with Jesus isn't the greatest thing going. I might ought to bail out and go back to Judaism, live under the law where it's safe and there's no risks. The author of Hebrews encourages them to endure, to persevere. And in chapter 11, he describes for them what faith is and that it pleases God. And then he lists a series of Old Testament examples of individuals who lived by faith in difficult circumstances. And then we lifted three examples out of that list of Old Testament examples. First of all, we looked at a Canaanite woman, Rahab, who stood alone waiting for God to rescue her. When the Israelis came and conquered Jericho. Then we looked at three young men, mid to late 20s, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who lived their lives based on internal principles rather than being pressured by external circumstances. And said, and would not bow, and told King Nebuchadnezzar, we will trust God regardless. He can deliver us, but they submitted to his will, whatever that might be. And last week, we looked at the octogenarian. There's that word again, the octogenarian. A senior saint in his 80s, pushing 90 possibly, Daniel, who would not change his worship patterns even in the light of Darius's edict. And he found himself in a den of lions, and God delivered him, and God was glorified. This morning, we come back to the book of Hebrews, where the author returns to the theme of endurance, and he pictures a race. He's calling on his readers to run that race with endurance. There's an athletic metaphor throughout, or picture throughout this, these, three ver these verses, and so I kind of tried to reflect that in the outline. It's 
in your bulletin. There are five keys to running this race. Do a little, little flavor of uh, athletic stuff. First of all, the author tells us, remember, you've got examples to follow. In verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, picture is of a distance race. The contestants include the author and the believers to whom he writes, and by extension as people of faith who have trusted Jesus Christ to us. Therefore, identifies the cloud of witnesses as those individuals in chapter 11. Those Old Testament saints. The word cloud was used in classical Greek to talk about a large group of people, so we know what they're talking about. It's interesting, you know, that word therefore. I know Todd has done it on a regular basis, and I have as well. When the word therefore, we say, what's the therefore, therefore? <laughs> it's to look back at something. But this isn't the typical word that's used for therefore. This is used only one other place in the New Testament, and it probably ought to be translated consequently. Consequently. It looks back to chapter 11 and specifically to that summary in verses 39 and 40. All these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What was it that God had promised? And ultimately, the reference here is to the Messiah, to the new covenant, to all that's wrapped up in the Lord Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection and the new kingdom. Notice they and us, because God is providing something better for us. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, there is the they and us again. Consequently, I really believe that the chapter break here at chapter 12 is a little unfortunate in our English Bibles. I think these three verses bring to conclusion the words of chapter 11. Now, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that has been an issue of questions. Some are suggesting that the saints in heaven are now watching us here on earth run the race. Others suggest that the imagery is talking about being a, a witness. They are a witness to what it means to be faithful to God. I, th I think two things can help us decide what's in view here. As I look at the scripture, the, the one thing that I see about believers in heaven is we're adoring and praising and worshiping God. We don't see anywhere where believers in heaven now are watching us unless it's here. We understand that there will be a reunion and fellowship at the resurrection. But I'm not sure that that's the imagery here. The second thing that helps me is that word witness. It comes from the Greek word for martyr. If you take the Greek word and you transliterate it, you, in the English we get our word martyr. It, it came to mean witness. And the importance of the word is the fact that they bore witness to the testimony of sovereign grace and faithfulness of God. 
think of the term witness as meaning testifier or example. Not the example of someone observing us, but rather we look to them as an example of what it meant to live by faith. I think in the, our first time together, I quoted J. Vernon McGee, and I'd like to do it again. I, I wish I could get that, I could imitate him, but I really can't. So if, you, if you're familiar with J. Vernon and you've listened to him on the radio, think about that voice as I read this quote. I will be very frank, he says. I'm glad it's not that way because I cannot think of anything more boring than sitting in the balcony in heaven watching this crew running the Christian race. I'm glad it's the other way around. They are witnesses, not spectators. They witness to us in all ages, in all circumstances of life, in all strata of society. These men and women of the past run the race of God. Every one of them was a winner. They all did it by faith. They are an example and an encouragement to us today that we run the Christian race. That is the purpose of the 11th chapter of Hebrews. It's to encourage us to run the Christian race and to run it by faith. Another thing I find interesting, that that little word also, let us, <clears throat> therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also. There are some translations that leave that little word out, but I think it's important that it remain in the text, in our understanding, because it links those saints of the Old Testament with us today. As they live by faith, so must we. As they failed at times, so will we. As their faith was sometimes rewarded, at other times they were suffering, that will be our experience as well. They did it, so could you. There is not one plastic saint among them. Some of them faced impossible circumstances. They went to their graves with the scars and marks of humanity. They were common folk, and every one of them was commended for their faith. They are a great cloud of witnesses, an example to us. And through that example, they call out, go for it. Trust God. You can do it. The first key to running in the endurance faith race is to remember that you have examples to follow. The second is also found in verse, eight, uh, verse 1, shed the dead weight. Lay aside every encumbrance, the text tells us. The word encumbrance is only used here in the New Testament. It means bulk or mass or weight. Something that is useless, extra, unnecessary, excess baggage. Think again about the Greek games of the first century. Those athletes would train for months. They would eat the right food. They would exercise at various times during the day. Some of them would put weights on their body to increase their stamina. But when it came time for the race, they had lost some weight. And they would lose those weights. And they would lose their tunic and all of their clothing. They would run in the buff. They believed in the truism, less is more. They didn't want anything to hinder them in running the race. The Olympics are coming up in the next week or so, I guess, huh? And if you watch them, you're going to see some pretty skimpy outfits. They do that so that they're not encumbered as they compete in that event. 
if they're running or swimming or whatever. The writer wants his audience to know if you're going to be successful in this Christian race, you've got to get rid of anything that would be an encumbrance. We're not talking about sin here. He'll talk about that in just a moment. For his audience, the writer of Hebrews, he's saying, if you're thinking of going back under the law and all of the trappings of the law, that would be an encumbrance to you in running the Christian life and living under grace. For us, encumbrance is something amoral, amoral, something neutral, something counterproductive. Maybe perfectly fine, but it weighs us down. It could be a friendship, an association, an event, a place, a, a habit, a pleasure. And the list goes on. The problem isn't with the encumbrance, but what it does. Good things become bad things when they keep us from the best things. And that's what the writer has in mind. Using a different metaphor, someone has said, if it's not a wing, it's a weight. <laughs> I like that. If it won't allow you to fly in the Christian life, it's a weight. Get rid of it. But you know, when we think about this encumbrance and getting rid of it, sometimes we ask the wrong question. We ask, what's wrong with this activity? What's wrong with that movie? What's wrong with that song? What's wrong with that person? That's the wrong question. I think there are some questions that we need to ask. Two of them flow out of Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. The first question, is this activity profitable? You remember Paul's words? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. It may be a fine thing, but is it profitable in my spiritual journey, in my race? Secondly, will this dominate or control my life? In that same verse, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Is it profitable? Will this dominate or control my life? Thirdly, will it cause me or allow me to grow spiritually or not? And then finally, will it glorify God? These and other questions need to be uh, asked and answered. It might be wise just to take some time this week and, and jot down things that might be hindering you in your spiritual race. If it's bad to be slowed down in your race, it's, it's even worse to stumble and fall. The writer says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so eagerly, easily entangles us. It's interesting how the, the author weaves this um, athletic metaphor. A, a person in the first century often wore long cloaks, and it would be impossible to run in those. You, you could get caught up and trip and fall. And now he talks about the sin that might entangle us. And he says, third of all, the third key is to keep the rules. <laughs> Some suggest that the sin is, because it has the definite, definite article, the, he has a specific sin in mind. And in the context of Hebrews chapter 11, it may be doubt, lack of faith, or apostasy. Certainly that may be the case. But others suggest that the sin is a reference to characteristic sin that's always around us to trip us up. It's the sin that easily trips you up. 
may not be a problem for somebody else, but it is for you. It could include lack of faith or debilitating doubt. could be something else. Something that entangles you. Covetousness, envy, anger, lust, unthankfulness, pride. But whatever it is, it must be stripped off. The Bible is our rule book. God gave it so we'll know right from wrong and how to live the Christian life. But there's a problem in the Christian community. Many believe that being exposed to good Bible teaching is automatically solves all of our problems, and we sort of um, ingest biblical truth. It's kind of like nuclear fallout. <laughs> if you're exposed to it, then you're must going to be able to take it in. But that's not the way it works. The Bible is a reliable map. It's an inspired map. It will get you from here to there, but you've got to get into the, the, the vehicle of application and move. You won't drive. It's not automatic. I can steady a map trip to Atlanta, Georgia, but if I don't get into some vehicle, that map's not going to help me one whit. Turn a couple of pages over to James chapter 1, if you will. James chapter 1 and verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. But once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The blessing doesn't come from hearing the word of God. The blessing doesn't come from studying the word of God. The blessing comes when we take that word of God and implement it into our lives and do it. Remember, you've got examples to follow. Shed the dead weight. Get rid of those encumbrances. Keep the rules. Don't be entangled by sin. Then the author says, Fourthly, show some courage and commitment. Show some courage and commitment. As the story goes on the open plains of a small town called Marathon, the ancient Greeks met the Persian army, a, a superior Persian army, in battle. If the Persians won, there's a good chance that Greece would fall. But again, against impossible odds, the Greeks won defeated the per Persians. And, and a Greek soldier named Pheidippides was dispatched to run to the headquarters in Athens 20-plus miles away to tell of the victory. As the story goes, he ran and ran, entered the city and sprinted to his superiors and gasped, Rejoice! We have conquered. And after he delivered the message, fell to the ground dead. Philippians became a Greek hero, symbol of courage and commitment, endurance and determination. And from this event was born the race we call the marathon. 
There are many metaphors that describe the Christian life in the New Testament, but as I mentioned, race is one of them. This is another interesting word in the original text. It's the word from which we get our word agony. If you take the Greek word and transliterate it in English, agony. The Bible translators have translated race, but if we were looking at this, we could say that it meant, let us run with endurance the agony set before us. <laughs> our race begins at conversion. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. We run the race throughout our lives until we go to be with Jesus. Now, let's be clear. Not all of the race is agony. There are times when it is. I want you to notice another word, that word endure. Endurance. Let us run with endurance. It's made up of two words in the original language, a verb and a preposition. The verb to remain and the preposition under. To remain under a heavy load or a burden is how it was used. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. I also want you to know that that word or those words, let us run, is, is one of two commands in these short three verses. He's writing to people who are thinking of giving up the ship, going back to Judaism, and his call is, don't do that. Run. Run with endurance. The race that is set before you. When you run a marathon, you can't make up your own course. <laughs> if you run... Away from that course, you'll be disqualified. Our race is set before us by a sovereign God. Sometimes that course will take us up steep hills through swamps and dark forests, forests but he has set the course. It's in his game plan. There are times when we will want to throw in the towel. The author says, let us run with endurance. He doesn't leave us there. The fifth key to running this endurance faith race is found beginning in verse 2. Fix your eyes or keep your eyes focused on the goal. Some might say keep your eyes on the prize. <laughs> the other witnesses that are mentioned in Hebrews 11 are important, valuable ultimate example of faith is Jesus Christ. And those words, fixing our eyes, have the idea of, of looking at one thing and then moving and changing and looking at something else. Taking your eyes away from this and looking at Jesus. And I think the word, the name Jesus is deliberate in his humanity. He demonstrated faith and courage as he lived his life and went to the cross. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The word author describes a leader, a founder, or a pioneer. Pictures one who takes the lead or blazes the trail. In a race called the Christian life, Jesus set the course of faith. Our goal is to follow him. He is the source of our spiritual life, our salvation, our faith. He is the perfecter of faith in the sense that he is the finisher or the completer. 
He has brought to com completion the reality of our faith through his death, resurrection, and glorification. And Jesus shows us the motivation to live by faith, fixing her eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And those two words don't seem to go together, joy and cross. In what sense was it joy as Jesus faced the cross? But let me suggest four things. I think for Jesus there was joy in obeying and carrying out the Father's will. I think there was joy in bringing glory to the Father. I think there was joy for Jesus in knowing that he would be raised, ascended, and exalted at the right hand of God. And finally, there was joy in knowing that he would reconcile sinners to God. For this, Jesus endured, that's that word again, hupomene, under the heavy burden of the cross, despising the shame, he went to the cross. But it doesn't end there. The victory over the cross is seen in the last words of verse 2, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews has a lot to do with the priesthood. We understand that the priest always stood as they ministered. Here, Jesus, as our high priest, has finished the work and has sat down at a place of honor at the right hand of God. The ordeal of the cross has been completely and exhaustively fulfilled. The results stand proven by God who sets in dignity at the right hand of the Father, fixing our eyes on Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, a couple of things. I, I think, first of all, fixing our eyes on Jesus means taking our eyes off of our circumstances. Looking to Jesus means taking our eyes off of what we're facing. Our circumstances can be a dangerous distraction. If we're constantly focusing on our successes and our failures, our good times and our bad times, we're focusing on those who fail us, who ridicule us, who wrong us. When we're focusing our attention on bad times in our life, health issues or problems at work or problems in the home. Don't misunderstand me. All of those things are significant and important. But what I'm suggesting is when you're faced with those circumstances, go first to Jesus. Remember his kindness and his goodness and his mercy. Once you've done that, then go back to the circumstance and deal with it. Because you have fixed your eyes on Jesus to help you work through that issue. Fixing your eyes on Jesus means taking your eyes off yourself. Sometimes we face difficult situations. We're hanging on the backside of a question mark asking, why God? And having a little pity party. Best to go to Jesus. His goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his compassion then deal with what you're facing personally. 
I think this focus is both internal and mental. Studying Jesus, studying his life, his ministry, his death. But then there's another word of encouragement in verse 3. It's another command, by the way. It's the second command. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The word consider is another unique word. It's used only here in the New Testament. It was a term that meant to reckon, to compare, to weigh, to think over. It was a mathematical term to to compute by comparing things together. And the challenge is for the audience of Hebrews, think seriously about Jesus. Consider what he went through, experiencing suffering and death. He endured hostility. I'm, I'm in HUD's Adult Bible Fellowship, and over the past two years, we have studied two Gospels, John, and we're now studying Luke. And one of the things that has struck me in that study is what Jesus put up with in this life. The attacks against him, verbally and physically, that led up to the cross and before Pilate, And the crowd screaming, kill him, crucify him. We'd rather you release Barabbas, a terrorist and a criminal, but hang Jesus on the cross. Take a hard look at the life and legacy of Jesus. Come to your own conclusive decision. So when you're feeling beat up and just plain weary in your race, remember the overwhelming endurance of Jesus Christ as he went through the experience of suffering and death. That way the author says you'll finish. You'll not grow weary and lose heart. This is another kind of a sports lingo phrase that the author uses. It was used to describe a runner that might come to the end of the race and collapse. Aristotle used it in his writings of just that way, of a, of, of a runner who crossed the finish line and was so uh, depleted of energy, he collapsed, collapsed in exhaustion. Readers of Hebrews are still in the race. Writers of, writer of Hebrews is encouraging them to keep going. Do not give up. The way to avoid spiritual collapse is to carefully calculate Jesus. His endurance, his faith, his reward, which because of his endurance and his faith is our reward as believers in Jesus Christ. His inheritance is our inheritance. He is our example. Remember, you've got examples to follow. Shed the dead weight. Keep the rules. Show some commitment and courage, or commitment, excuse me, courage and commitment. Keep your eyes focused on the goal. The letter of Hebrews was written to folks 
Jewish believers who were facing persecution. They were risking their property, their jobs, their families, and some of them their lives to follow Jesus Christ. And the author pens words of encouragement to hang in there in the face of persecution and ridicule. Don't even consider going back to Judaism. Jesus is sovereign and sufficient to meet your every need. Trust him. This is a call to faith that endures in the face of difficult circumstances. And this call of faith echoes down through the centuries to this place and to this time. I'm sure that circumstances are different, but we all face things that will call on us to endure, to faithfully trust God who is just and good and merciful and knows us better than we know ourselves. So whether it's a first century reader or this letter or a present day believer, those of us here this morning are encouraged in these short verses to do two things. Look back at past examples of enduring faith and be encouraged. If you have an opportunity, take time to read back through Hebrews 11 and study some of those lives of men and women and what they endured trusting God. John Bailey writes these words in his book, A Diary of Private Prayer. I thank you, Lord, that this Christian way on which I walk is no untried or uncharted road, but a road beaten hard by footsteps of saints and apostles and prophets and martyrs. And we could add to that list the names of folks who we know and have known, who in the face of daunting circumstances have walked faithfully trusting God for the outcome. Look back at past examples of enduring faith and be encouraged. But then we're also challenged to look forward. As we run the race before us, Jesus is our ultimate example. He is our ultimate goal. He is the triumphant Lord of glory who finished the course. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Negatively lay aside every weight and the sin that entangles you. And again, I would encourage you, think about that. What is it in your life at this moment in your race that's hindering you from running efficiently and effectively for Jesus? And positively focus on Jesus, considering his enduring faith, When you feel like giving up, remember we have an example, the Lord Jesus, the promise of coming glory as we finish our earthly course. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be distracted by things that would hinder you in your Christian life. Keep running the endurance faith race. Will you stand and will be dismissed with a word of prayer?
And before we do that, I would invite you to join me in singing the little chorus that we sang earlier, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Sing with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our gracious God and Father, how true those words are. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his example. And Father, I pray for each of us as we run the race, the Christian life, that we will run it confidently, looking to you, Jesus, as our example of one who ran faithfully, enduring difficult circumstances, but successfully. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for this opportunity to worship. Pray your blessing on our time this week. May we honor you as we walk through the week with you, I pray in Jesus' name.